0: Welcome to Michael and Us, I'm Will Sloan, here as always with... Luke Savage, hey everyone. And we're doing a little experiment this month. We know that you just can't get enough, so for the month of October we are going to be doing two episodes a week, one free, one on the Patreon.
1: Yeah, since the start of the show we did uh, one episode every two weeks before we started a Patreon, then we became a one app a week outfit with half the episodes paywalled, Um, and now we're going to try something a little different, doubling our content uh we've had a big surge in listenership lately there's a lot more of you listening now than there were uh before Uh, a lot more people subscribing on the patreon so just for the next few weeks i guess for the month of october at least we want to want to run a little michael and us test pilot program so if you like the show and you want to see more of it you can let us know by subscribing on patreon
0: anyway we're recording on friday october 2nd it's a big day in the wild world of politics a tragic day This morning, we all woke up to some disturbing news. Beloved actor Rick Moranis from Ghostbusters and SCTV and Little Shop of Horrors was tragically struck down in the Upper West Side. And Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Who could forget Splitting Airs, Little Giant? Big Bully with Tom Arnold, (laughs) a life tragically cut short. Um, Actually, that's not true. He's still alive. He's fine. But he was hit by a random assailant in the Upper West Side. We wish him the best. And I think that's all the prayers that we have to offer on this episode, right?
1: Well, as it turns out, uh, while Michael and Us Nation was offering its thoughts and prayers to Rick Moranis, grief-stricken liberals who've been calling Donald Trump a fascist uh, for the past four years sending a lot of thoughts and prayers his way uh, after the president and first lady's positive test result for COVID-19. And I mean, look, in a way, this is just a cliche at this point. There have been so many running gags on left Twitter and other places during the Trump era, taking aim at this sort of thing. You know, there's the whole so-and-so welcome to the resistance bit. And I don't think we exactly have much to add, but it is truly extraordinary how the liberal imagination is capable of this incredible double think that can hold on the one hand that the president is enabling paramilitary white supremacists and putting children in concentration camps— and is a foreign agent imposed by a foreign demagogue, but also can muster these kind of politics aside, yada yada, thoughts and prayers, tweets and sentiments. I think it's absolutely incredible.
0: All that certain liberals believe in is their own essential goodness.
1: Yeah, I mean, I do do think that's part of it. You know, every time this happens, I ask myself, what explains this disjuncture? Is it, you know, pure false consciousness? You know, is it just a simple contradiction that they're unaware of? Is it a straightforward case of hypocrisy? And I think there are different explanations, but I think one of them, and, you know, it depends on which liberals we're talking about, you know, we could, whether we're talking about rank and file liberals versus, I don't know, multimillionaire Hollywood liberals or celebrities or, you know, elite, uh, democratic politicians, people have their own motivations. But I, I do think that one of the possible explanations is that when a lot of people say this stuff, they don't, they don't really believe it. You know, on some fundamental level, a lot of people who've built an entire, uh, you know, public persona and political identity on alarmism about Donald Trump, they don't really believe what they themselves are saying. Because I mean, think through, think of the implications if they did. I mean, this is really low hanging fruit But there was a press conference Nancy Pelosi did, I think, last week where, you know, she was being asked about Trump's refusal to commit to a peaceful transfer of power should he lose. And, you know, she was saying, you know, Mr. President, sir, this is not North Korea. Honor your oath to the Constitution and the people of the United States, et cetera, et cetera. And a a few moments later, I think the same reporter asked her about what was going to be done to block trump's supreme court nomination um and the two questions are are pretty closely connected right because trump has as good as implied that the reason he's trying to put someone out you know on the court at the last minute is because he thinks the election is going to be decided in in the courts so there's a direct correlation between these two questions and pelosi basically said uh no we're not gonna we're not gonna shut down the government you know i think the question specifically uh cited demands from some on the left that you know, Democrats obstruct the regular processes of government, shut down the government uh, to block Amy Coney Barrett's nomination, and her answer was that no, they weren't weren't going to do that because the federal workers need their paychecks now more than ever. Um, <laughs> and I mean, just the disjuncture between those two things is absolutely incredible. So the the president is. A dictator that is you know who is worthy of analogies to north korea but also everything just needs to continue kind of as is and i think this has been a feature you know you, you see it in this highly personalized way now that trump has COVID and everyone's sending their thoughts and prayers but you've seen the same thing play out through uh, throughout the trump era one of my favorite examples is that on the very day that uh, the impeachment vote happened democrats in the House overwhelmingly voted to approve Trump's trade deal. And there was a news report at the time which had an incredible sentence about how Democrats wanted to show that they were still able to work with Trump despite their (laughs) differences or something like that, Um, which I think is absolutely incredible. But no, I mean, I think a lot of the people who say this stuff, they really don't believe it. One of the reasons hyperbole is such a popular device in our era is because it often saves you from really thinking things through. I mean, and this applies in other ways too. If you take your own harsh statements about deportations and things like that seriously, you know, you then have to extend them to criticize the Obama administration as well. You know, you radicalize very quickly if you actually follow through on this stuff in your own head. But I think, you know, since the Obama era, at least and probably before, politics for a lot of liberals has really become a kind of fan fiction that's divorced from reality. And I think that really helps explain how there can be uh, these two very different kinds of reactions to Trump. I liked how Ken Klippenstein, the reporter, put it where he said everybody who said they'd riot if Trump replaced RBG is now wishing him a speedy recovery. I mean, you couldn't (laughs) put it more succinctly than that. Uh, I liked Rachel Maddow offering uh, thoughts and prayers for the first family. I I suspect also for her ratings. I guess just as a last comment on this, in my line of work, you know, I I mean, I spent a lot of time thinking about liberals and trying to unpack how they think how they understand the world and and obviously criticize a lot about those things. And it's always a temptation to ascribe things liberals do to ideology. And while I do think some of that is at work here, I think a lot of what, you know, liberals in America anyway do at this point is just like it's just learned reflex. It's really not rooted in ideology at all. You know, it's the dexterity that comes with extreme partisanship for a particular, you know, faction. It's the same dexterity that allows Republicans to attack Biden for supporting the crime bill, while also cheerleading you know, the most racist law and order stuff they see on Fox News and not really recognizing any, any contradiction there. Particularly because of social media now, there are all kinds of things that people just do because it was useful in a particular situation. And you do it enough times and it becomes a Pavlovian reflex. I mean, in 2016, for example, you know, liberals were not anticipating the challenge from Bernie Sanders. They thought that uh, Bernie was going to get 2% of the vote in Iowa, was going to drop out, and then they could all pretend like they'd agreed with him all along, uh, but because uh, he didn't get two percent of the vote in Iowa, because he actually threatened Hillary Clinton, an entirely new discourse had to be invented to explain why why the candidate who was championing all the things that Democrats frequently intone they want to see, you know, notably Medicare for all, all these reasons why actually, you know, universal programs were now bad. Why Bernie Sanders' career of supporting marginal causes that are now, uh, you know, that have since entered the mainstream, why it was actually the result of his uh, privilege and not any kind of conviction or anything that we should laud. Whereas Hillary Clinton's record on, I don't know, gay rights was the result of canny pragmatism or, you know, something like that. There are lots of other examples like this, but it's hard to ascribe things like that to ideology exactly. They're more just reflexes that are developed at particular moments and that people then continue after they even after they've outlived their use sometimes. That said, to go back to the Trump stuff for a second, I do think there's some ideology at work here. I mean, I think some people, particularly a certain kind of liberal, no matter what they might say about Donald Trump, One of their core beliefs is that institutional power commands an intrinsic respect. Mm -hmm. You know, the office of the president, uh, whoever occupies it, demands respect, even if the same people hold that the man within it is completely loathsome. This is how powerful Democrats who uh, criticize Trump as an authoritarian Russian puppet for years can then get up and applaud uh, his uh, State of the Union addresses and applaud particular enthusiasm when he says that socialism is never coming to America.
0: You know, it's funny to watch the reactions on Twitter to the news about Trump because you know, everybody I follow, uh, many ordinary civilians are just tweeting things like, oh, that's great. Hope he dies. You know, you know, very mean-spirited and irreverent sentiments. And then you see that contrasted with, like, tweets from the mainstream media, from big blue checkmark media people about how now, listen, it's it's not decent and right for you to cheer on Donald Trump getting the coronavirus. In, instead, you should wish him a speedy recovery and then hope that Uh, The courts have their way with him, you know, (laughs) something like that. This is a relatively recent development. I remember when Ronald Reagan died in 2004. Of course, all of the press coverage of his funeral was entirely hagiographic and laudatory. And I think even people who didn't like Ronald Reagan just sort of believed, well, of course, this is how you do it at this time. You know, you put aside uh, petty partisan bickering and you don't speak ill of the dead and you celebrate the man's life. And people didn't even think of that as ideological. People thought of that as just the way things were and should be. They didn't see it as this kind of narrative that was propelled by the media and political classes. But it is a narrative. It is ideological. And it's funny to see it break down on social media now that everybody has a voice, now that people can be exposed to and experiment with their own ideologies, Anyway, this is occurring to me especially because we're doing an episode this week about um, a a powerful, although somewhat less powerful figure, uh, Michael and us returning champion Roger Ebert, who, you know, it's no secret he's been on my mind a lot lately. He's basically been on my mind ever since the start of the pandemic. I haven't stopped thinking about him. And it just occurred to me why. It's because. There's a whole generation of younger cinephiles who I don't think have any living memory of the many years that he was at the absolute center of all film discourse. And they wouldn't have a a sort of built-in reverence for the fact that this man consciously sought to be America's film critic.
1: Let's move on to a movie now that's one of the most brilliant, weird, and unusual American documentary films I've seen in a long time.
2: Roger Ebert was the definitive mainstream film critic in American cinema. He has been writing for half of the history of feature films. Roger was a mature writer early on. He's written over a dozen books. He wrote a novel. He won a Pulitzer Prize. How on earth did Roger Ebert write Beyond the Valley of the Dolls? Boobs. Beyond the Valley. You know, this is a title. Roger was a good addition, but he also could take it. He is a nice guy, but He's not that nice. It's thriller week on Cisco Niebert in the movies, and we've got three new ones. Sound a little excited, Gene? Sound less excited, Roger? Roger Ebert and Gene Siskel were the most powerful critics of all time. The perfect matching of opposites. Even though Roger wrote beyond the Valley of the Dolls, Gene live the life These were towering figures clashing it was I'm going to crush you You give Benji the Hunter a positive review That's totally unfair because you realize
0: they almost didn't care what anyone else thought as long as they could try to persuade the other This week we watched a movie called Life Itself which is a cradle to grave documentary about the man shot largely in the last months of his life
1: yeah, I mean, for longtime listeners, we may not have to justify a discussion of Roger Ebert on this podcast. We have talked about uh, him before. And in fact, somewhat recently, we did an episode called Rule of Thumb that was about uh, the relationship between him and Gene Siskel. But the spiritual center of this podcast has always been a reexamination of things that were once dear to us. And depending on what the topic at hand is, we can have completely abandoned those things or simply developed a more complicated relationship to them. For my co-host, Roger Ebert is perhaps the superlative example of one of these subjects or figures.
0: I do think that, yeah, if we have a Mount Rushmore of this podcast, it would be Michael Moore, I don't know, Christopher Hitchens. uh, (laughs) Who am I missing? Somebody else. And, And yes, now Roger Ebert.
1: So after Ebert came up on our last Patreon episode, Will, by the way, got into some trouble recently with, uh, with the folks at RogerEbert.com. Thanks to, uh, (laughs) thanks to some, what I thought was some pretty playful, uh, sniping that he did on, uh, on Twitter, giving Roger Ebert style star reviews to, uh, Movies that, that have come out in the past few years. Some people really did not like that uh, because they knew uh, they knew Will was right. Um, but Ebert came up on a recent episode, and I realized that there's so much more we can say about him. And this may not even be our last uh, our last episode on him. But I I had not seen. Life itself. Before I thoroughly enjoyed it, and though I have some things to uh, to ask you about it, Will, and some a few thoughts of my own, I really think uh, I really think you're in the captain's chair for this one.
0: Well, as I mentioned, this documentary takes place largely in the last five months of Ebert's life. Ebert, the longtime film critic from the Chicago Sun Times, America's most famous and beloved thumb wielder, former host of Siskel and Ebert. In his last decade, he was stricken by cancer, a cancer that robbed him of his lower jaw. He was not able to speak in his final years, and as I recall, it was in these final years that he became something of a secular saint. He was much admired for his courageous public battle against cancer, and in those years, he was very forward-thinking in his embrace of the internet, of social media, of blogging, these new platforms that gave him a new voice. Uh, So this documentary follows him in his last months when The Cancer Returns. It shows the relationship between him and his wife, Chaz Ebert, but it also offers a portrait of his entire life. Growing up in suburban Illinois, coming to the big city as a 20-something and being appointed the Chicago Sun-Times film critic, becoming, I believe, the youngest staff critic in the country. We see him win the Pulitzer Prize, form his very lucrative partnership with Gene Siskel for television, and there are digressions and detours into various elements of his life and identity. We see him going to Cannes, we see him uh, cavorting with his journalism chums at the local bar O'Grady's in Chicago. The, The movie, in its early stretches, spends a lot of time making a big case for him as this kind of, like, grizzled newspaper man who is part of Chicago's wild newspaper culture. Ultimately, the film, which is directed by uh, Steve James, who made the documentary Hoop Dreams, which is one of the films that Roger Ebert really championed in his life, ultimately the film is a laudatory portrait of Ebert as a great critic and a great man. Uh, I found this movie, on this viewing, pretty compelling— I think it presents a pretty fascinating picture of somebody in the final stages of cancer. I think it presents a pretty uh, compelling and even moving love story between Ebert and his wife, Chaz. I think where the movie stumbles is in dealing with Ebert as a critic and making a case for him as, as a great critic and a great writer, somebody worthy of continued study. I think it makes a case for him as somebody who lived an extraordinary life. But whenever the talking heads come on and start debating what was his role in American Letters, the movie's ultimate conclusions are, well, he was great because he was a populist, uh, because he discovered talent, and we see a couple of people that he allegedly discovered, Gregory Nova, Errol Morris, Ava DuVernay, although I personally would argue that, that these are exceptions, not the rule, and also that he was powerful and influential, one of his journalism buddies in the movie talking about other critics who were working at the time says, I didn't know Pauline Kael. Fuck Pauline Kael. Roger Ebert and Gene Siskel were the most powerful critics of all time in any realm. I think ultimately this is the movie's thesis with regards to Ebert's role as a critic, and my response to it is, first of all, is it even true? They may have been more widely viewed than Pauline Kale was read, but have their ideas lasted for as long as hers? What even were their ideas? And finally, even if it is true, so what?
1: So there's a few things I want to ask you about. I mean, the thing that I found most compelling, and, and I was not familiar with this particular part of the Ebert mythos, was the argument that he's a kind of a populist and that he's to be understood as such. You know, the film notes, for example, that he loved being on public television. Um, he worked at the Chicago Sun-Times, which was uh, the more working class of the Chicago newspapers, that he uh, had wanted to attend Harvard, but uh, attended a local university uh, in his hometown in Illinois. It contrasts him with, uh, with Siskel, who is much more uh, patrician. And at least as a critic, uh, I think it implies a, a bit more, a, a bit more snobbish and selective. Ebert was a broad and appreciative type of critic, or so the film argues.
0: I think the film does argue that. Although personally, I'm skeptical of that argument. I, I think there may be some truth there, but I don't think it's really visible to the naked eye. If you watched Siskel and Ebert, you would see two people basically of the same worldview with minor differences. As we discussed in our earlier Siskel and Ebert episode.
1: Right. It's like two candidates arguing in a Democratic primary without Bernie Sanders in it. It's like... Well, you know, one of them is the more working class candidate because they're from Minnesota and the others taken to be more patrician because they're from New York, but they have the same politics.
0: You know, what's funny. One of the talking heads we see in this interview is a friend of the show, Jonathan Rosenbaum, who makes a point. I'm, I'm just going to quote from him. He says, I think they were very conscientious about trying to do what they were doing as well as they could and as seriously as they could but invariably a show like Gene and Roger's show becomes a part of that mainstream system. And by and large, the purpose of mainstream reviewing is not just to valorize films that get multi-million dollar ad campaigns, but to eliminate everything else. And I thought it was funny how quickly the movie sort of refutes and then dispenses with this suggestion. It sort of logs this as like, okay, you know, noted, noted, this was a line of thought about him. But now we're going to bring out immediately after Gregory Nova to say, well, they discovered me. Um, doesn't that disprove it?
1: It's a bit of a digression, but I do just want to uh, note we often joke uh, various people from Al Gore to George H.W. Bush have been called friends of the show. Jonathan Rosenbaum actually did appear on our show uh, some weeks ago. So if you want to check that out, that's on our free feed. Well, will interviewed him. It's uh, mm-hmm. it's pretty good. But I was going to say, the film, I think, introduces some tension vis-a-vis its own thesis, uh, perhaps accidentally, uh, its own thesis about Ebert as a kind of populist. I mean, for one thing, it presents him as sort of the first real film critic. And it implies that his style of film criticism is to be contrasted with what was essentially a kind of consumer review that occurred before and that, and really was not personalized at all. It, you know, people use different names and film critics were not kind of household names at all. And and Ebert kind of shook that up, or so the film, uh, the film suggests. In detailing some of Ebert's personal qualities, I think it introduces another wrinkle. I mean, there's a scene where somebody is recounting an incident at a, at a Q and a or something. Uh, and the, the person on screen says something like there were limits to Roger's commitment about the democratization of film criticism. And in this incident that's recounted some impetuous student asked Ebert about, you know, why should your opinion about, you know, I liked this movie that you're trashing. Why should, uh, why should your opinion matter more? And, you know, Ebert said something like, uh, well, because the publisher of the Chicago sun times hired me and not you. And also, uh, you know, would you want to listen to yourself? You know, and in the in the film, it's kind of presented as like, oh, that's Scamp Roger. Like he totally shut down this annoying uh, this annoying heckler and, you know, asserted his alpha status as America's uh, as, you know, America's film critic. And I don't know, maybe I'm reading too much into this. I mean, I've been to film festival Q&A's and the people who ask questions are usually absolutely insufferable or actually people who ask questions in any medium. Everybody's. Everybody listening has probably been in a room, maybe in an academic or in a political setting at one point or another, and heard somebody begin their question by saying, this is more of a comment than a question, and after which an audible groan uh, fills the room. But anyways, Ebert does seem like somebody who was very proud of his uh, you know, status as, as America's film critic. It was a mythos that he himself, I think, to some extent, had self-consciously cultivated. And I had this same thought uh, during the section about how he seemed quite angry that it was Siskel and Ebert and not Ebert and Siskel. And a woman who was a producer on the show in the 1980s said that either just Ebert or perhaps both uh, Ebert and Siskel had wanted the title credits of the show to alternate each week. So uh, one of them would appear first one week and then the other one would appear first uh, the next week, which, of course... Uh, is what is what we do on Michael and us.
0: The idea of Ebert as kind of like the first film critic or the first notable American film critic is pretty ridiculous. Like, I mean, I could give you a dozen names. You know, Otis Ferguson, James Agee, Manny Farber, and especially like Pauline Kael, who was a nationally recognized, nationally famous critic, a best-selling author before Ebert even started writing. But to what you mentioned about Ebert self-consciously creating this mythos as america's film critic i think that's what really has been attracting me to ebert as a subject lately it seems to me that when he died in 2013 he died right before a time when this title this unofficial and to some degree self-imposed title of america's film critic would have started being challenged I think of all the developments that have happened in the world, not just of film criticism, but the world of politics and the world at large since his passing. We see him in this documentary writing blog pieces towards the end of his life, pretty liberal-minded blog pieces about, you know, the need for gun control or this or that. I wonder what would have happened to him during the big schisms that hit the Democratic primaries in 2016 and 2020.
1: You're, you're, saying, you're saying that he would have been a, a big Hillary guy. I mean, I think so. I
0: think <laughs> he was a very extremely online guy, and I think he could very well become a big resistance lip, you
1: know. Well, it, it didn't happen, so let's not uh, let's not dwell on it. We don't know what might have been.
0: But but there were other developments too. What would have happened during the Me Too moment, which among other things intensified this very popular discourse that's happening right now about expanding or challenging or disrupting the canon, quote unquote. Ebert was a kind of ambassador of cinema. He had a column, The Great Movies, which was assembled into a series of books where he talked about The Great Movies, and I think the word the is very essential. It's not his great movies, it's the great movies. Right,
1: it's, it's, a, it's a pronouncement of canonical status, and Ebert is, is himself the arbiter of what gets to be uh, within the canon or not.
0: As a prose stylist, he wrote a lot in the first person. He was very proudly subjective. But there's a, a very telling and instructive moment in life itself when Martin Scorsese says, he didn't get caught up in certain ideologies of what cinema should be. I think this is one of the things that's very appealing about Roger Ebert to those who find him appealing. The fact that he doesn't seem dogmatic, the fact that he seems endlessly flexible or open-minded. But of course he is very ideological. In presenting a vision of America's film critic, it's a vision of somebody who is, you know, a white, straight, cis male, reasonably educated, reasonably well off, of a certain generation, yeah, liberal, of a certain socioeconomic background and status. Um, And that's a perspective that welcomes many things. But it's not a perspective that welcomes everything. You know, you, you only have to look at his reviews of certain films like, I don't know, Pink Flamingos, or Anatomy of Hell, and you will see the limits of his perspective. And I think all of this would have chipped away at his status as america's critic had he continued to live and i mean there's nothing wrong with coming from a a certain background and being a sort a certain type of person we all you know as ebert said we all live in a box of space and time and movies are our windows and walls but given everything that has happened since including the multitude of voices that have emerged on the internet. It's hard to imagine him retaining his supremacy.
1: Yeah, on that, I did want to ask you about the sort of strangely laddish quality that runs throughout uh, this Mm. film. I wasn't aware of that either. But the film is very uh, keen to depict Ebert as almost, I don't know, a kind of like Hugh Hefner figure or... I found the presentation kind of retrograde. It was a very sort of 1960s or 1970s era take on what the sexual revolution was or something like that. Yeah, he's a bit
0: of a womanizer, you know, him and his buddies at the bar and he's, they talk a lot about, uh, oh, Ebert was always bringing in these women and you should have, you should have seen his taste in women, you know?
1: Yeah, I found, I found that very strange. And I mean, this film came out in 2014. I don't think that uh, that pe- I don't think the director would have put that in the same film three or four years later. Something I thought was very funny is when I believe it was the critic A.O. Scott, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, who's talking in laudatory terms about Siskel and Ebert, and he's saying, you know, it was transgressive. You know, it's 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 you saw these two guys arguing, and and it was like what you want to say to your to your friend or or your wife or your girlfriend or your mother. <laughs>
0: Yeah, that, yeah, when I see Siskel and Ebert arguing over Benji the Hunted, uh, I think these are the <laughs> fights I want to have with my girlfriend. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I don't know. I I thought uh, I thought this was uh, kind of strange and a little bit uh, I don't know disparate with the the rest of the film and a bit anachronistic. Uh, But then I did also find it very funny when uh, you know throughout the film bits of Ebert's prose are cutting in, and after all his kind of like laddish bar buddies have been talking about him in this very jocular way, there's an excerpt of him reading from his own prose, and I don't even know what he's talking about. There's like some '60s or '70s film poster for like an exploitation movie or something, and you just hear Ebert saying. The poster displayed improbably Bucks of Women, and I was inside in a flash, which is the hackiest and most pompous way you could possibly convey that sentiment.
0: Yeah, whenever the movie reads from Ebert's prose, I mean, Ebert was a good writer, he was a good prose stylist, but the passages that the movie chooses to read to us I think are... are... Pretty weak and pretty corny, don't you think?
1: There's two I wanna uh, I wanna talk about actually. Two lines of Ebert prose specifically. One that I really like, and one that I quite profoundly dislike. In this, in the case of the second. I'm not sure I can quite fully articulate uh, why. So I want to talk I about bet that I know. I bet I know what it is. But anyway, go ahead. <laughs> so the one I like is he's talking about uh, one of my favorite films, which is the Ingmar Bergman film Cries and Whispers, which I think is one of the most beautiful films uh, ever made. Uh, he's describing how the film, quote, envelops us in a red membrane of passion and fear, uh, which I think is, you know, it's a very simple sentence, um, but it's an incredibly evocative and quintessentially Roger Ebert kind of phrase. If you haven't seen Cries and Whispers... The line about a red membrane refers to just the use of the color red throughout the movie uh, as a kind of recurring uh, motif, and it's it's a wonderful, wonderfully evocative uh, description of that film. It, and ju- it's true and just,
0: when when you when you say it, I I conjure up not only the image of that movie but also the the mood of the movie.
1: That's right. I mean, I can I can see Liv Ullman's anguished face against a backdrop of of red. It, it kind of puts me puts me right in uh, in the movie. The second passage I wanted to read is an interesting case because as a As a sentence, just, you know, as it's constructed, it's not particularly bad. I don't even necessarily disagree with it, but it reminds me of some prose we read from David Foster Wallace a few weeks ago when we were talking about the uh, HBO made for TV movie about uh, McCain and Palin, uh, Game Change. David Foster Wallace wrote that essay called Up Simba, and I guess the year 2000 during John McCain's uh, ultimately failed run for the GOP nomination. I hadn't read the essay for a few years, and it used to be one of those things that I thought was like a really serious piece of writing. And Will and I read it out loud on the show, and, and we're both just like, holy shit, this, this sucks. This is terrible. <laughs> we,
0: that occurred to us while we, while were, we were it. While we were reading it, yeah.
1: Yeah. Uh, but so the the line uh the line of Ebert's prose uh, it's him talking about the Cannes Film Festival uh, and he says Cannes is one of those events like Wimbledon the Kentucky Derby the Super Bowl that comes cloaked in its own legend <laughs>
0: yeah. and
1: the thing is I mean who can disagree right I mean just as a straightforward description you know Cannes is almost a kind of idiom unto itself a, you know which connotes you know high minded cerebral film criticism also a sort of sophisticated glitz whatever else but it strikes me as a line of prose that could easily appear as the lead in a you know time life special anniversary edition of something it's pronouncing on the mythos of cans while also uncritically partaking in it in mm-hmm. some way mm-hmm. and i don't know saying it saying it like that i feel like i haven't justified myself here i feel like a lot of the listeners probably feel that i'm nitpicking um but do you know what I'm getting at? Well, I don't think it's
0: nitpicking because the movie is presenting this prose to us as representative of his of his style and his critical philosophies. So even though these are just short fragments from its work, if the movie is presenting them to us as representative, I think it's fair to criticize. There was a passage from his review of Bonnie and Clyde, you know, the movie the movie is trying to make a case for him early in his career as having gotten in right at the right time and having been on the right side of a lot of generation gaps. And so, Bonnie and Clyde, very divisive movie at the time, he liked it and he said, Bonnie and Clyde is a milestone in the history of American movies, a work of truth and brilliance. It is also pitilessly cruel, filled with sympathy, nauseating, funny, heartbreaking, and astonishingly beautiful. And the review concludes, The fact that the story is set 35 years ago doesn't mean a thing. It had to be set sometime. But it was made now and it's about us. So something that he does, and I think this is it's a mix of his background as a newspaper reporter, but also his role as America's critic is he's often doing these big pronouncements.
1: Right. So there's the, this part in the film that talks about uh, his career as a uh, 21-year-old student newspaper editor, which is, you know, something that, that I wouldn't know anything about. And there's this hilarious bit where it's recounting uh, how on the night that JFK died, you know, here was 21-year-old uh, Roger Ebert, you know, clad in tweed bespectacled looking over the copy you know as the printers were running and noticing that there was some ad that involved like a gun or something with with an arrow that was pointing or something and it said you know bang you're dead and because of the placement it was uh it was aimed right (laughs) it was aimed right at JFK's head the day after the the day after the assassination and Roger Ebert did a did a stop the presses moment and uh and the talking heads in the film are talking about what a what an absolutely adult moment this is and and they're reading, you know, lines that he wrote about various news events, and they're very impressed that a 21 year old could pronounce with such authority on uh, on these events of of great national gravity. And you know, I I want to get back to appreciating Ebert a little more towards the end of the episode. But when I was hearing these particular passages, I did think, you know, I mean, both of us worked in student journalism and you and I have talked a lot before about how a hallmark of bad student writing, and this applies to both of our own writing from the time as well, to some degree, a hallmark is that when you're young, you don't have your own voice. You haven't developed enough as a writer and a thinker to to really speak and write in your own voice. So what you do is you you absorb, often through a kind of unconscious osmosis, an authoritative voice that you you know you draw from another source or from multiple other sources. So I'm I'm not mounting this criticism of Ebert, but that is absolutely what leads to, you know, the most pompous kind of student writing, you know, where someone who's in their first semester of an IR course is, you know, and has read a few pages of Niall Ferguson or Henry Kissinger or Francis Fukuyama or something and they're pronouncing on a on a news event with the kind of somber voice of you know, a NatSec analyst that they've heard on CNN or something uh, that, you know, that kind of thing never goes well. And so going back to Ebert, I wasn't super impressed by, uh, you know, his writing from his student days. Uh, and I hasten to add, uh, nor, nor with my own. <laughs> It seemed to me that he developed a lot more as a as a writer after um, and that uh, his writing also became a lot more adult uh, than it was in this moment where his writing supposedly stood out as wise beyond its years.
0: When we did the Siskel and Ebert episode, we talked a lot about, you know, thumbs up and thumbs down and star ratings and what they meant and uh, the ideology of star ratings. I don't know if we necessarily need to go over that now, but this is a movie that is very much trying to make the case for Ebert as the most important and influential critic of its time. And I'm kind of struck by its repeated insistence that he he's not ideological and that his power came from being sort of uh, plain-spoken and uh, commonsensical. Because I wonder to what extent Ebert's legacy lives on. On the internet, we all live in our own little niches and bubbles. I know that among people I follow on Twitter, I'm not really sure how influential Ebert is anymore. He may still be very influential in other circles. There are some critics I know of, like David Ehrlich, who I think has has tried to sort of position himself as an heir to Ebert. Matt Zoller-Seitz is another example. But life itself doesn't do a lot to present... What was Ebert's defining critical philosophy? What were his ideas? What were his contributions, his his big intellectual signatures? Uh, Did you see any?
1: Well, I actually had a question, which I think is related to this. Every time I watch uh, Siskel and Ebert clips where they're arguing about a movie and whether it deserves a star rating, or I guess not every time, but quite frequently, I notice that they get into a meta debate about what it actually means to give a star rating to something. Mm. Uh, during the episode, uh, which is excerpted in the movie, where they were talking about Full Metal Jacket and something else, and you know. Benji the Hunted. Right. You know, and Ebert is saying something about how you have to, you know, of course, Benji the Hunted isn't one tenth, you know, the film that Full Metal Jacket is, but you have to take a film on its own terms and you know and, and assign a rating accordingly so i, I don't know the, the rating system i mean there's the obvious criticism of it that it
0: that it's limiting or, that it's, or yeah, binary it's too,
1: it's too limiting too binary and it, it forces things into this kind of good medium bad kind of uh spectrum which is unhelpful but it seems to me that if you're going to use star rating system like that if you're going to cleave to it so hard maybe you should be a little more uh systematic about what it actually means. Because I don't know, you know, Ebert gave uh, completely mediocre or often, you know, I don't know, quite in my view, objectionable films, you know, three and a half, four stars, but then he also gave great movies four stars. I just don't see how City Lights and 2004's Crash can both be worthy of the same rating. And that seems to expose another limitation of, <laughs> of this way of talking about films and 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 ranking them.
0: Well, I mean, I guess if Ebert has an enduring idea, an idea that unites his entire body of work and remained consistent, it's that everything must be graded relatively and approached on its own terms, which is an idea that, I mean, I guess it has its place. I guess there's a certain amount of self-evident truth to it. You know, it's true that if I go see Benji the Hunted, I'm not going to see it for the same reasons I'm going to see Full Metal Jacket, and I'm not expecting the same experience. But it's sort of so self-evident that it, it's kind of unhelpful, and I think it's even a little bit limiting if that's the center of your of your critical praxis.
1: I think, uh, to some extent, I've moved on from from that view. I think he used to hold it more strongly I'm not sure why, but I feel like it's perhaps often wrong when it comes to to cinema and movies.
0: Well, because it's okay to object to things and and, ju- and just I think have blanket rules that I don't like this and I don't like it for these reasons and it applies and I don't I don't have to meet something on its own terms. If it's something that I object to, you know. Yeah,
1: I mean that's 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 one thing. But I mean, what I was going to say was, you know, I think of a film like The Color Wheel, the black and white Alex Ross Perry film, which is, mm-hmm. you know, was made on a on a shoestring budget, and you know, which I think some people might very strongly argue is not as good as uh, more mainstream successful films. I mean, it's not as technically polished. In some ways, you might indict it for being less mature than even other films he's made since. And yet I don't know how you can watch a film like that and not see that there's an incredible creative spark to it, that it is just vibrant with ideas and dynamism and life. And I don't know, I think sometimes you find those things in the, in the unlikeliest of places, sometimes in places even unlikelier than, than a film like that. And so, I mean, to me, that is one of the limitations of this evaluate things on their own terms mindset is that actually some things, particularly films that may appear very unpolished and kind of not ready for prime time, you know, sometimes you find some of the greatest gems uh, there. I feel like that that take that take is something that people used to say a lot as teenagers including me like I used to sort of be of the view that it's like punk music and Mozart are both good because you have to evaluate them sort of within the like within the whatever the set of rules peculiar to their medium are and I st- I still think that to some extent but I don't know I, al- I also just think like I don't know things can be things can be good or or not
0: there's an Ebert passage from his review of the 1985 horror movie Reanimator which Uh, anybody who's seen it knows is a fine film he he gives it three stars and he says one of the most boring experiences on earth is a trash movie without the courage of its lack of convictions if it only wants to be cynical it becomes lifeless in every moment a bad dream on the screen one of the pleasures of the movies however is to find a movie that chooses a disreputable genre and then tries with all its might to transcend the genre to go over the top into some kind of artistic vision however weird Stuart Gordon's reanimator is a pleasure like that a frankly gory horror movie that finds a rhythm and a style that makes it work in a cockeyed, offbeat sort of way. And he concludes the review by saying, By the end of the film, we are keenly aware that nothing of consequence has happened. But so what? We have been assaulted by a lurid imagination, amazed by unspeakable sights, blindsided by the movie's curiously dry sense of humor. I guess that's our money's worth. It's three stars, and it's a review that on the face of it seems very open-minded and very... Uh, welcoming of different kinds of cinematic experiences, but I also detect a trace of condescension to it and, and a trace of boundary enforcing. Do you know what I mean? Every compliment is sort of backhanded. Every compliment is kind of, well, within this three-star genre, the movie does an excellent job.
1: Yeah, and it's funny because it's it's one of those critical moves that by implication is anti-elitist, but you know certainly in the reading you just gave, it is actually kind of strangely elitist and is actually all about reentrenching a sort of hierarchy of virtue in, in criticism
0: you know there are two critics in this movie that the movie sort of introduces as table setting for ebert uh, pauline kale and andrew saris who were both very influential in the popularizing of film as an art form and in the popularizing of film criticism as an art form and they had two seemingly similar but i think quite distinct approaches Andrew Saras brought over the auteur theory from France. He made the case that during a time when so many cinephiles were looking at the great European cinema, Bergman, Truffaut, Antonioni, Saras was saying, pound for pound, the best national cinema in the world is Hollywood. And you only have to look at some of the great auteurs of the studio system to see great art. People who were able to impose an artistic vision against this big corporate edifice. Pauline Kael, by contrast, was against the auteur theory, famously. She had a quote that is much repeated, which is, The movies are so rarely great art that we may as well learn to appreciate great trash. And that seems like a very populist sentiment on the face of it, but I'm more compelled by Saris's point of view. I think there's something limiting in Kales. There's something in kale that says, well, look, it's not actually art. So like, let's not, let's not even, let's close off any investigation on those terms. Let's approach it simply as trash. The movie introduces both of these critics as being forerunners of Ebert, and I, th- I see a little bit more of Pauline Kael's philosophy in that passage from Ebert's review of Reanimator, and it rubs me the wrong way.
1: I feel as if at this point we should probably say a few words of appreciation for Ebert, since uh, though it, it might not have come, uh, come across throughout the last half hour, I think both of us do like him and appreciate certain things about him. Uh, I actually have all of the great movie's books— and I will say that they are a very useful guide to a lot of movies that are, that are very much worth watching. Ebert is a great appreciator of cinema, and that really comes through in his reviews of a, lot of, uh, of a lot of classic films. I think the books also do showcase some of his limitations. There are movies that he appreciates, but in my view, doesn't fully understand. His review of Maholland Drive uh, being a good example, uh, that, I think that was in the fourth volume, which just came out a few years ago. There is something like a coherent thesis in Mahalan Drive, and Ebert doesn't really entertain that uh, as an idea. He sort of approaches it as just sort of a, a weird and jumbled movie. But the books, nevertheless, have, uh, have much to commend them, and I often find myself reading the essays after I revisit films by uh, you know many of the quote-unquote big directors.
0: I appreciate Ebert very much as a newspaper reporter, I think his interview pieces and his film festival coverage are quite punchy and dynamic. If you look at his profiles of directors and actors, especially from the late 60s and 70s and into the 80s, he did great little pen portraits of uh, Groucho Marx. Uh, there is, he did a wonderful essay about Lee Marvin. And he has a wonderful book about going to the Cannes Film Festival, in fact, where that bad passage of Ebert prose came from <laughs> called uh, Two Weeks in the Midday Sun, which is a very evocative portrait of being a working critic at Cannes. I know that he very much identified himself as a newspaper man first and foremost, and I think his reviews can be appreciated on that level. He was a daily beat reporter and his beat was the movies, and he went to the movies and he gave you his sort of first impression view of them
2: mr hitchcock roger ebert from the chicago sun times the other day i got a call from a graduate student who's doing a paper on the use of the staircase as a motif in the films of hitchcock i suggested that she write to you how would you respond to a question like that or to academic criticism in general i think the staircases are made to go up and down
0: Well, the biggest news of the week is that Saturday Night Live just posted on their Twitter account the first video of Jim Carrey as Joe Biden and Maya Rudolph as Kamala Harris. Uh, I know this doesn't matter at all, but it was interesting to watch that video and and see, you know, Jim Carrey's uh, rubber-faced facial expressions. And it made me realize that about a year ago, a year ago at this same time, do you remember how everybody, like, former Onion writers, were doing all these mea culpas about how they had enabled the rise of Joe Biden? Like, like the guy who created Onion Joe Biden, you know, Diamond Joe, I think did a long editorial about Oh, I'm sorry, uh, I, I didn't know he was friends with segregationists, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. And look, I know things have changed since then. I know that he is the Democratic nominee now, and he is better than Trump. But sometimes it makes me feel like I'm, I'm like going insane when I see that SNL video. And it's just it's just like Diamond Joe Biden again, as if nothing has happened, as if that whole discourse from last year has just vanished into thin air.
1: I mean, this speaks to what I was saying at the start of the episode about how certain things really are not about. Ideology, or at least not in quite the way you think. They are just kind of learned reflexes that are created fleetingly for these very specific moments. And who knows uh, if Biden is elected president? I'm really not sure what's going to happen. I found my mind uh, turning a lot in these last few weeks to the question of what uh, what happens to the liberal identity, what happens to the liberal political imagination, if indeed. All of these people get their wish and Donald Trump is defeated on November 3rd. The two things that have really animated the, at least the mainstream liberal identity since 2016 are uh, hatred of Bernie Sanders uh, and his movement and, uh, and, and to a much larger extent, hatred of Donald Trump. Trump is the centrifuge around which all of this stuff that we colloquially call the resistance has kind of been orbiting for the last four years. And I have absolutely no idea what happens to it once he's no longer the president.
2: Okay, our next film is called Frozen Assets, and we take a step way down in quality here. This is one of the dumbest comedies I have ever seen. You're going very easy on it, I said <laughs> So far. Yeah. Let me try. The first lame joke sets up the whole story as Corbin Burnson is sent from the head office to manage a small town bank. But what he doesn't know, it's a sperm bank. Now, isn't that a scream? Here's how his misunderstanding goes in the movie as he meets a customer played by Paul Sand. I'd like you to think of me as an old friend. Don't be shy. My door is open if you need a hand. Two hands. Hey, I'll get down on all fours. That's how eager I am to please. Nothing Running to the sperm more bank more is the uptight Shelley Long. Long. She and Bernson feud and fuss in dialogue that's on the level of a failed TV pilot.
1: I don't even understand why they built a place like this in a hick town like Hobart.
2: Because hicks like us also have problems with impotence and sterility and sexual performance we're just like you thrown in for laughs that never materializes the character of a local millionaire nutcase played by larry miller that's your very you score tonight score sex S E S no thank you uh
1: but i i've never really alone sure but with others you know i uh...
2: A little of his act goes a long way. I knew Frozen Assets was going to be awful from its opening scene in which we see an executive at the head office jabbering on the phone with underwear stretched over his head. I don't think I can adequately describe to you how unpleasant the remaining 95 minutes were or will be for you. It was as depressing an experience as I've ever had going to the movies. That's... 23 years of going to the movies professionally, maybe six, 7,000 pictures.
1: Well, Gene, I was going to the movies professionally for two or three years before <laughs> yeah, you were, yeah. and there was nothing I
2: saw during that time that even approached this in its abysmal awfulness. This is perhaps uh, the worst comedy ever made. And you know the theory of reincarnation? They may take the ad out. <laughs> <laughs> <They may> take... <laughs> that makes it sound good, so They get the it? second worst comedy ever made. Okay, they won't the, use no, it. Not even the worst comedy ever made, just the worst movie ever made. I don't know. You know the theory of reincarnation where the dues we pay in this lifetime yes. we may get to collect in another lifetime. <laughs> For having seen this movie, I want months and months and months in a beautiful valley with honey <laughs> and nectar and zephyr-like breezes. I mean years perhaps would be appropriate. You know, you have simple tastes. I, I could And a big this, car. This is a <laughs> yeah. Get something valuable. <laughs> zephyr-like breezes.